If you're a gardener, you'll know that bare soil is the enemy of fertility. And that's where cover crops come in. And thanks to show sponsors True Leaf Market, we have you sorted for cover crops this autumn. True Leaf Market have been selling heirloom and organic garden seeds since 1974 and they've got a great selection of cover crop seeds including their all-purpose garden cover crop mix the most popular cover crop they sell to home gardeners no idea where to start with cover crops well True Leaf Market has a free pdf guide to cover crops just visit trueleafmarket.com and search for cover crop guide you can order your cover crops online now at trueleafmarket.com and use promo code otl10 to save ten dollars on orders of fifty dollars or more so visit trueleafmarket.com and enter otl10 for ten dollars off your first order Check out the show notes at janeperone.com for more. At LensCrafters, we value expertly tailored eye care, provide state-of-the-art eye exams, offer a wide assortment of designer brands and high-quality lenses, because everything we do at LensCrafters is for every site that makes your life special. We offer 50% off lenses with frame purchase. Shop in-store and online. Book your annual eye exam now on LensCrafters.com. Lens crafters because sight. Eye exams are available at the Independent Doctor of Optometry at or next to Lens Crafters. Doctors in some states are employed by Lens Crafters. Offer valid to April 2nd, 2023. See associate for details. Hello and welcome to On the Ledge podcast. It's episode 273 and I'm feeling mossy. Did you know that one of the meanings of the word mossy is antiquated? And yes, that is how I am feeling. It's coming towards the end of the school summer holidays here and the house is a tumbleweed infested wasteland with the occasional apple core and half-drunk glass of milk kicking about. What can I say? Uh, not to say that I don't love my children, but I will be looking forward to them going back to school and college. Thanks for all the feedback on the last episode, 272, on plant trials. When I told my daughter about what plant trials are, she told me, it sounds a bit like the Hunger Games. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, there will be Talanzias fighting for their lives as we speak. And I'm heading back up to Walton Hall to do some more plant trialling and also to interview Don Billington of the nursery. Every picture tells a story. So upcoming Talanzia info will be arriving in the show in the next few weeks. But let's get on to this week's show, and I'm talking about the hidden world of mosses with Dr. Neil Bell. Now, this is the title of Dr. Bell's new book, which takes that very misunderstood group of plants, the mosses, and looks into what they do, why they're so incredible, and where you can find them. And I was delighted that Dr. Neil Bell, who's a bryologist, that's a studier of mosses, at the Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh, joined me to talk about 
all things moss-like. Dr. Neil Bell, thank you very much for joining me. You're a bryologist. I guess we need to start by finding out what a bryologist is and what you do, if we can start with that one. So yes, a bryologist is someone who studies mosses and also liverworts and hornworts. So these three groups of land plants, mosses, liverworts and hornworts, are together called bryophytes. And unfortunately, we don't really have a common word that everyone knows that, that stands for mosses, liverworts and hornworts together. So uh, so bryophytes is the best we can do. But basically, it's mosses and, and plants that are related to mosses. Now, your book, The Hidden World of Mosses, is great because there aren't that many moss books out there, let's face it. And I, I'm embarrassed to say that my moss knowledge is very limited. I can think of one moss name off the top of my head, which is, of course, Sphagnum. Um, why are mosses so underrated? And I guess we should ask first, let's break down the differences between those different types of mosses that you mentioned, the liverworts and the hornworts. What's the categorization? Yeah, so 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 basically, until quite recently, we thought these were were separate groups of land plants, mosses, liverworts, and hornworts. We always knew they were similar and they had a similar lifestyle, but we we thought that uh, perhaps some of these groups were more closely related to to other land plants than others. And it's really just in the past ten or fifteen years that we've come to the conclusion that what we actually have is a natural group, mosses, liverworts and hornworts or, or bryophytes together are a group of green land plants that split off from the lineage which led to all the other land plants that we know today. That's the, the ferns and the conifers and the furring plants, probably about 500 million years ago. And they've been doing their, their own thing ever since. So they're just a different group of uh, terrestrial green land plants with uh, a different way of living um, and, and nonetheless, there is, they're actually very diverse. So there are about uh, 20,000 bryophytes in the world. So they're actually a very important group. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, mosses are, people are always trying to get rid of mosses, aren't they, from places, lawns and stones. But I, I do actually love a bit of moss. I think it's, a, it's they're wonderfully uh, tough and often beautiful. I mean, is that something that you really get to appreciate when you're studying mosses and you're presumably down on your belly or looking up or in odd places to find these things? I'm imagining there's a lot of hidden beauty there. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I mean, you're asking why mosses are, are, are so underrated. It is just the scale, I think, that's that, that's underlying that. So mosses are, are small plants. So they're they're not a, what you'd actually call microscopic. So you can actually see them with, with your naked eye or with a, especially with a hand lens, a sort of magnifying glass, if you want to look at them more closely. Um, but they're not so big that we're aware of them when we're just... Uh, going about our everyday business, so not like flowers or trees, where they're they're basically they're impinging on your consciousness when you're walking around. With mosses, you actually have to make an effort to look more closely, and it's that fact that they're sort of in between that microscopic and macroscopic world. I think that makes that makes mosses and moss diversity so so underrated and and ignored. But yes, to to, to see mosses properly or to see other bryophytes properly, you have to uh, you have to look closer. You have to make an effort. And, and that's what I hope this book is going to do. It's going to uh, to get people uh, down on their knees or looking at wall tops, looking at this green stuff that they see around them and trying to see the, uh, uh, the actually what looks like just a single substance is actually a, a collection of many different species of, of mosses and liverworts. 
Mosses seem to be incredibly tough. They're growing in the most inhospitable circumstances with very little in the what seems very little in the way of resources that they're not sitting in of oftentimes on a wall how, how are they actually surviving in what seems to be quite extreme uh conditions so mosses have a different way of living from other plant groups and this is sort of it's almost as if when when mosses split off from the rest of land plants about four or five hundred million years ago they decided to to take a different approach to ecology and to living so so bryophytes don't really have a vascular system they have a very limited vascular system that's these sort of tubes and things that convert that uh, transport water and nutrients around the the bodies of other plants uh mosses and liverworts really lack this so they're largely just getting their water and their nutrients from over the entire surface of the plant and they don't have roots so they're not uh they're not taking water up from the soil and to some extent, they're they're ebbing and flowing with the availability of, of of water and nutrients in their environment. So it's sort of a different strategy. So that means that on the one hand, they do very well when there's lots of water available, because if there isn't water available, they'll just dry out. So they need a constant availability of water to actually do well and to uh, to keep metabolizing and outcompeting other groups. At the same time, because they're ebbing and flowing with the availability of moisture environment, they have to be very good at uh, drying out as well. So mosses are very good at resisting desiccation. They can dry out and remain in a dry state, often for, for weeks at a time, and then come back to life, in a sense, when there's there's more water available. So one sort of phrase that's often used to describe mosses ecology is drying without dying, so it's almost paradoxical. We think of mosses as loving wet places, and that's true. But at the same time, they're also very desiccation tolerant. And this goes hand in hand with, with lacking of athletic system and uh, with this lifestyle that we call uh, poikilohydric. And um, it's really what distinguishes bryophytes from the other groups. And it also means that they can, they can take over at quite a low metabolic rate so they can survive in places perhaps where they're not able to grow for for large periods of the year such as uh, snowbed habitats in the in the mountains where perhaps the ground is covered in snow for many months of the year and it also means that because they don't have roots they can grow on uh, on surfaces on substrates which other plants can't like directly on rock so you won't see many vascular plants or or other more familiar green plants growing directly in rock, but many bryophytes are, are able to do this. So you must be incredibly knowledgeable about many, many moss species. Are there any sort of standout mosses that you love telling people about who are maybe looking at you and wondering why on earth you've dedicated your life to, to the study of mosses? How can you turn somebody into a moss fan? So there are many. So, it, so in Britain, we have about uh, 1,100 bryophytes, that's mosses and liverworts and, and, and some bornworts. Um, and in Scotland, we have most of these, about about 1,000. So part of appreciating mosses and liverworts is just to, to appreciate that diversity. But of course, there are some that I'm, I'm particularly keen on. So we have some amazing mosses there are some in the in the family splachnaceae it's a, a strange word but it's a family of mosses and this includes mosses which attract insects to disperse their spores which is something uh really, really only happens in that particular family of mosses 
So these mosses will produce spore capsules with giant umbrella-like projections, which almost look like mushrooms. And they grow in places like um, uh, Scandinavia and, and Canada. We get some uh, species in this family that also grow in Britain. They're not quite so dramatic. And these mosses will attract insects, tiny flies, with these brightly colored mushroom spore capsules, mushroom-looking spore capsules, to disperse their, their spores, which are, are actually uh, sticky, so they'll stick to the fly, and the fly will collect the spores and then fly off and deposit them in, in somewhere that this, this moss can then, can then grow. So these mosses, species like Splash and Lithium, will grow on dung. So that's why they've developed this ability to, uh, to, to use insects to disperse their spores, because they need to find some method of getting from one bit of dung to another bit of dung. And uh, this is obviously something which uh, which requires a bit of help. So, so yeah, so the Splachnaceae are very, very dramatic and, and interesting species. I'm also quite keen on mosses which grow in, uh, particularly in southern temperate areas, which almost look like miniature trees. So we have these mosses that we call dendroid, and dendroid basically means tree-like. And they're, if you can imagine a uh, a miniature tree, a tree that's about five or ten centimeters tall, then that's really what these mosses look like. And they're they're that shape for the same reason that that trees are that shape. They're trying to get their, their photosynthetic tissue above the uh, the other smaller plants that are growing around them. So so yeah, these are some of my favorite bryophytes, but really there are many, so I could go on and uh, and talk about favorite mosses for days. At LensCrafters, we value expertly tailored eye care, provide state-of-the-art eye exams, offer a wide assortment of designer brands and high-quality lenses, because everything we do at LensCrafters is for every site that makes your life special. We offer 50% off lenses with frame purchase. Shop in-store and online. Book your annual eye exam now on LensCrafters.com. LensCrafters, because sight. Eye exams are available at the Independent Doctor of Optometry at or next to LensCrafters. Doctors in some states are employed by LensCrafters. Offer valid to April 2nd, 2023. See associate for details. More sterling moss to come. But a bit of housekeeping now. And I wanted to give you a quick Patreon update. This is my crowdfunding platform. And a shout out to John, who took up my offer of a free trial at the ledge end level. Patreon, if you're not aware, is the way that I get support from people on a monthly basis. So every month you pay a small amount. And in the case of the two higher tiers, you get extra bonus stuff like the bonus podcast, an extra leaf, my Christmas mail out. And if you're a super fan, which is the top tier, you'll soon be getting access to an audiobook of my new book, Legends of the Leaf. So lots of reasons to sign up. Thank you to John. Madeline has also become a legend. Janet has upgraded from legend to super fan. And Janet is the wonderful life force behind the Cambridge plant shop, Small and Green. Do check them out at smallandgreen.com. So Patreon, it's out there and details on my website, janeperone.com, if you want to find out more about that. If you want to support the show in other ways, you can leave a review. And that's exactly what Ashley Rose 83 and Osh Dejunens, it's a, not quite sure what that name is. 
but they both left reviews and I was extremely grateful. Uh, they said nice things about the book and the podcast and that both lifts my spirits and helps other people to find the show. The other piece of info that you should know is that my next project, Houseplant Gardener in a Box, is coming. I've just put details of it up on my website. And if you go to my Instagram or TikTok, which are now both j.l.perone, you'll find an unboxing video of me checking out this new amazing product. Very giftable, if I may say so. A set of 60 cards and a booklet about houseplant care, helping you choose the right plants for your home. You could also use these as decoration. You could hang them on your wall. They are beautiful enough to do that. So it's a really lovely set, which I do hope you'll check out. And the details of that are at janeperone.com or check it out at j.l.perone on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, it's out the end of September in the US and the 11th of October in the UK and should be available everywhere. So that's great news. And also don't forget to sign up for my newsletter, The Plant Ledger. I should say, in case you haven't done so so far because you think, well, it's just going to be a newsletter version of the podcast. It really isn't. There's loads of information in there you won't find in the podcast. Um, a listing for houseplant events in the UK. A news section, which I'm now making international with little flag emojis so you know which country it's relevant to. Um featured follow so you can find new and interesting people to follow on social media who are planty and loads more. So do go and check that out. Again, all the info is on the website at janeperone.com and I'd love you to subscribe. It's time for a short and sweet Q&A this week. I can't remember specifically who asked me this question. I think I've had it a few times, but people were asking what a TDS meter is and whether they need one. TDS meters, have you got one? Do you use it? And what on earth does TDS stand for? Well, it's total dissolved solids. And this is a meter that you use in water to test water before you give it to houseplants. And you'll probably be able to pick one up for between, I don't know, five and ten dollars or pounds online fairly easily. If you've never seen one before, they look a bit like, I don't know what I could compare it to. Uh, they look a bit like a, a thermometer, a digital thermometer that you might use uh, when you're, when you get sick and very much small enough to pop into your pocket and they have a digital readout, so you can just pop them into the water that you want to test. There's kind of a some nodes at the end which you just pop into your water and you'll get a reading for the parts per million. So what are they measuring and do we need one? Well, the dissolved solids in water are made up of mainly two things, a bit of organic matter. So particularly if you're using, say, rainwater, organic matter might make up for a larger proportion. But Generally, the organic matter is quite small and insignificant. The main part is what we call mineral salts. And this is made up of stuff that you find generally in tap water that is put in there as part of the treatment process and also can vary depending on the geology of where you live and, and what's happened to the water. So we're talking about things like potassium, sodium, calcium, nitrates, chlorides and sulfates. So if you tested distilled water, 
there should be no dissolved solids in that water. So your TDS meter should show zero. And what is that number actually referring to? Well, it's ppm parts per million. So generally speaking, uh, if you had drinking water, you'd be looking for parts per million that were under 300. And if it was really good drinking water, you'd expect it to be round about the 100 mark. And that would mean 100 parts per million. So if you've got a million particles, 100 of them are consisting of dissolved solids. So the kind of people that often have TDS meters are people that are growing carnivorous plants because carnivorous plants cannot cope with a lot of mineral salts in their water. So if you're growing sundews or Venus flytraps, you want a kind of a maximum PPM, probably of about 50, the lower the better, really. And you would want to test your tap water and see whether your tap water could actually offer that. If it doesn't, then you might be looking at either collecting rainwater using distilled water or getting a reverse osmosis water, either from your own system or from an aquatics shop. Now, the measurement you're getting here, I should say, is different from the pH, the acidity or alkalinity of the water. Those are two different things. So the TDS meter is not going to tell you that. And we can cover testing pH in another Q&A. But what about other growers? If you're not growing carnivorous plants, do you need to bother? Well, I think it's one of those things that's handy to have. It's interesting to be able to measure and compare your water against other sources of water like rainwater. It's not essential, I would say, but it's an interesting addition that I would certainly add to your houseplant toolkit if you can. So I hope that helps whoever it was that was asking me that question about TDS meters. And if you've got a question for On The Ledge, drop me a line on theledgepodcast at gmail.com. Right, it's time to get back into the world of moss and warning, you're going to need your hand lens. People like me who are into houseplants, if we are pushed for a type of moss, to name a type of moss, we're going to say sphagnum. And I'd imagine before today, I probably thought that sphagnum moss was a single species, but I think you're going to tell me that it's a little bit more complicated than that. Can you tell us a bit about sphagnum moss and where and how it grows and how many species there are? Yeah, yeah. So, so sphagnum is not a species. It's actually a group of species. It's what we call a genus. So there are about 400 species of sphagnum in the world. And in Britain, we actually have about 40, which is quite a, a large percentage of that of that number. And the reason we have so many in, in Britain is because these plants are particularly adapted to uh, to bog habitats. So what we call uh, peat bogs in, in, in Britain. So these are are, are sphagnum mires, they're, they're habitats which are dominated by sphagnum moss. And the reason for this is because the sphagnum itself creates the habitat in which it can do best. So sphagnum moss does very well in, in very wet places and in quite acidic places. And as a result, it tries to keep the habitat in which it's growing wet and acidic so that it can outcomplete other plants that might get in there, like horrible trees and things like that, which will take all the water out of the, the soil. So, so sphagnum does this by, uh, by largely by its ability to store huge amounts of water relative to its, to its size. And of course, this is what makes it useful for horticulture because it's incredibly spongy, absorbent 
substance when you uh, are either either living or or dead. But it's able to do this because if you actually look microscopically at the the cells inside a sphagnum leaf, you'll see that there are two different types. So one type of cell is the normal green photosynthetic cell that's doing all the, the metabolic work. But these are actually quite small in relation to the, the size of the leaf. And most of the volume of a sphagnum leaf is taken up by these other types of cells, which when the plant is mature are, are empty and dead. And these are basically acting as uh, almost like giant water bottles, as receptacles to hold water. So if you can imagine a sphagnum leaf as being a matrix of photosynthetic cells and then water absorbing cells, that explains why they're able to hold this huge volume of water relative to their volume, uh, relative to their, their size, and keep the habitat in which they're growing continually moist. They also keep the habitat in which they're growing acidic because they actively pump protons, that's hydrogen uh, ions, into the cell, and that keeps the, the soil acidic. And this means that over hundreds of years, if you have a, a living carpet of sphagnum growing in a bog habitat, it will... It, uh, it actually inhibits decomposition because it will, by keeping the soil permanently waterlogged and permanently acidic, that's inhibiting the normal breakdown processes that would break down dead organic matter and release the carbon that's in that organic matter into the, the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. So that's what peat is. Peat is undecomposed dead sphagnum that is built up over hundreds, sometimes thousands of years. And it's incredibly important in terms of uh, climate change and um, and global warming because that peat that's uh, uh, that's in the soil there is a very important carbon sink. So some, it actually represents something like about forty percent of the the carbon that's stored in natural environments and terrestrial habitats is actually in the form of peat. So if that if you can imagine that carbon started to decompose. Uh, and that was then released into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide, that would be a major contributor towards the acceleration of, um, of, of climate change and of global warming. So that's why the, the maintenance of that living sphagnum layer on top of peat bog is incredibly important because it's that active living layer of sphagnum that's keeping the, the sphagnum bog habitat moist and keeping that carbon locked up into the soil and stopping it being released into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. Also, you've got that ecosystem that's developed around other plants that have managed to managed to survive in those kind of acidic conditions as well. So it's, it's a really unique uh, ecosystem, isn't it? The, the peat bog, as you say, massive carbon sinks, so important to uh, retain that. And I guess this is why on on the ledge we've been well, I've been banging on about peat free for as long as the podcast has been going. So, yeah, it's great to hear the actual reasons why we should be preserving those peat bogs. Absolutely. Uh, any more sort of sphagnum moss facts? I mean, of the, of the sphagnum moss species, are there any ones that particularly are standout or particularly interesting? There's one in particular which is very attractive. There's one called sphagnum sclerosum, which is these little sort of bent back leaves that are almost reflect completely over on themselves. So the, the entire plant looks a bit like uh, barbed wire or something like that. Uh, many, many species of sphagnum are quite, 
quite large and quite um, quite sort of juicy looking. So the ones that would be dominant on uh, on really good quality peat bogs, uh, things like um, uh, Sphagnum papillosum, they're really quite quite dramatic plants. But uh, others are quite small. So so some species of Sphagnum, even ones you also get in bogs, are are um, are small, but they can be very brightly coloured. So they're they're reds and they're oranges and and yellows, many sphagnum species, which are, are are beautiful and different in their in their different ways, they are actually in many ways quite similar to each other in terms of how they differ from other mosses. So, so sphagnum as a, a genus is a member of a, a family called the uh, Sphagnaceae, and that family is quite isolated from the rest of mosses. So they're quite different in their morphology and structure from the rest of mosses. But having said that. Most species of sphagnum are quite similar to each other. And that's because in evolutionary terms, that group that sphagnum is in split off from the rest of mosses quite early. But actually, most of the species of sphagnum that we have now have arisen quite recently. So if you can imagine a big, long branch of evolution persisting for hundreds of millions of years with lots of species arising and then going extinct, and then maybe there was just a a relictual group from which from that very ancient lineage from which the diversity of sphagnum that we now have evolved relatively recently. So, yeah, they're a very interesting group. Well, that is fascinating to know. And uh, certainly I'm glad that I now know that sphagnum is a genus and not a species. (laughs) I was also fascinated to read in your book about the uh, group of liverworts that are carnivorous. Again, had no idea. Can you tell us a bit about the carnivorous uh, members of the liverworts? Yeah, so I, I have to sort of I have to sort of qualify this to begin with in saying it's not really proven okay. yet. We, we we assume that some liverworts uh, are or may be carnivorous to some extent, but it's quite a difficult thing to prove. In fact, mm. and it's more than if if it if it is happening, then it's it's happening in more than one liverwort group, and probably it's evolved independently, but. The reason we're not quite sure is because these adaptations, which look like they could be associated with carnivory and, and quite possibly are, could also have arisen for other reasons. They could just be for, for storing water. So, so what this looks like is that we have these tiny species of liverwort, which have leaves, and then part of the leaf that is on the liverwort is actually modified into this very specialist structure, which looks like a big uh, a big sort of um, flask, if you like, if you if you imagine a sort of sphere that's open at one end, and this is part of the leaf. But obviously, what it does is it it can hold water and keep water uh, inside itself, a bit like a, a giant cup, if you like, with a very small entrance at the top. And there are some groups in which not only do they have these flask-like modifications of the leaves, but there's a sort of little flap on top of the flask, so a little door, if you like, into this tiny uh, chamber which, which holds water. And, uh, and this, this sort of trap door, if you like, appears to work in, in one direction. So if you push on it in one direction, you'll get in, but then you can't get, get back out again. And we can look at these, these lobules, as they're called, in liverworts, and we can see that they do trap microorganisms inside them. So things like protists and rotifers and uh, and of course, these if these are in there, then there's a. It would make sense if um, if these are to some extent being digested, and if the nutrients that are 
are inside these tiny animals which are dying inside the liverwort were being absorbed into the into the plant and we do find that these liverworts are often growing in nitrogen poor environments which of course is exactly the situation we find in vascular plants where we get carnivory so things like sundews and venus flytraps which which trap insects for um, carnivory and for usually for almost always for nitrogen it would make sense if these tiny liverworts are doing exactly the same thing, just on a much smaller scale, except with microscopic animals such as protists and, and rotifers. But it's still to be proven, unfortunately. Well, I mean, I imagine, as you say, that's quite hard to study. It's not the easiest thing. It's not like watching a Venus flytrap close. It's not the <laughs> same is. scale. I mean, yeah, you can show, for instance, that, uh, that certain plants perhaps have higher ratios of certain, uh, for instance, nitrogen isotopes, you can show that perhaps that's, that's one way of approaching it to see, because if, if, if these things are being carnivorous, then they should have uh, change ratios of, uh, of nitrogen isotopes, things like that. So that sort of study is actually underway now, and we, we may find out quite shortly, we may get definitive proof whether or not these, these liverworts are carnivorous or not. If people are listening to this thinking, well, I never knew that there were so many mosses and they were so interesting... Any guidance for us moss newbies as to where we should start looking for them in our daily lives and, and how to kind of learn more about mosses? So the great thing about mosses and, and the other bryophytes, the liverworts and, and the hornworts, is they're really all around us. So because of these attributes of their ecology I was talking about earlier, because they're 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 able to grow on almost anything and because they're able to resist desiccation and because some of them are even able to resist atmospheric pollution even though others are are very sensitive to it we can find them almost anywhere so we can find them in cities on on the tops of walls you've probably seen just uh just walking around your your local neighborhood even in an urban environment that you'll get this sort of green stuff on tops of brick walls on top of stone walls and you probably know that's moss but you probably don't know that there are probably five or ten species anywhere you're seeing moss growing on top of a, a wall or a, a brick wall or a stone wall, you've probably got many different species mixed in together. So really it's just a case of getting down there and looking closely. And first of all, just starting to be aware that what you're seeing is actually different species growing together, a community, rather than just a, a single amorphous substance. And to do that, uh, you ideally, especially if you're like me, maybe a bit older and your eyesight close up isn't as good as it was when you're 20. You need some kind of help to do that. So, so most biologists will carry around this, this sort of small magnifying glass that we call a hand lens. It's sort of something you, you put around your neck and or you can keep it in your pocket. And it's a tiny magnifier. So if you have one of these, you can just, uh, it, it opens up this new dimension, which can make you aware of this hidden diversity of these tiny plants around you, which you previously perhaps were only vaguely aware of in the periphery of your your consciousness, if you like. So so yeah, I recommend anyone just looks more closely and gets a hand lens. Secondly, there are groups. So we have in Britain the the British Biological Society. So there are uh, it's an association of uh, of academic and, and, and amateur biologists who hold meetings. And that's particularly helpful when you're beginning to to just go out in the field with other people that that know these plants very well and to be just be be shown them individually and be, to be told what they are because initially it's quite difficult to identify bryophytes as species and it helps to have someone 
showing you and actually um, confirming that what you think is is one particular species is actually. But really, urban environments are a good place to see bryophytes. Obviously, woodland is a great place to see bryophytes in most parts of the world, and particularly wet woodlands. So woodlands which are sheltered in narrow valleys, or if you happen to live in a, a wet part of the world, maybe maybe near the coast, anywhere where there's um, uh, either you have a lot of precipitation throughout the year, or whether or where, due to the topography, the woodland is sheltered if it's in a valley or something like that, and therefore retains a lot of moisture. These habitats are usually, at least in temperate areas, uh, abundant with many different species of bryophytes. Of course, mountains and bogs and heathlands as well are, are great for bryophytes if you can get to them. But yes, yeah, so so get a hand lens and try and meet up with local people in your your area who are interested in in mosses. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the hand lens. Anyone who's listened to my show before will know that I love a hand lens. I'm often telling people to get a hand lens, not just for mosses, but any plant is fascinating. to Yeah. Hopefully there's lots of hand lens converts already listening to this. But um, yeah, ideal for mosses. It really opens up a new dimension of of, of life to you, really. And it's, it's not just mosses, but as you say, parts of plants, so you can see stamens and flowering plants and uh, other sort of small parts of, of other plants, and of course insects and uh, and lichens and, and other things. So really, you have that layer of diversity and of wildlife which suddenly becomes available to you as soon as you get a hand lens and start carrying it around with you. So I really recommend that to anyone. Well, thanks very much for that insight into mosses. I am sure I'm going to be going out and looking around my garden. And suddenly, as it often happens with these things, suddenly our eyes will be opened and we'll be spotting mosses everywhere, I suspect. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for joining me, Dr. Neil Bell. Thank you so much to Dr. Neil Bell. And if you check out the show notes, you can find out more information about the hidden world of mosses, which is out now and will fulfill all your mossy needs. That's all for this week's show. I will be back two weeks hence. So I am wishing you a fantastically soft and springy landing into the weekend and Let me know how your moss hunts go. Bye! The music you heard in this podcast was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops, the Road We Used to Travel When We Were Young by Komiku and Overthrown by Josh Woodward. The ad music is nothing like Captain Crunch by Broke for Free. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit the show notes for details. <laughs> <laughs>